with uh, Trump's zealots in the Supreme Court sabotaging Roe versus Wade, more than 20 million women in the US have, well, already lost access to nearly all elective abortions in their home states. It has, of course, sparked worldwide concern about how easily women can be denied access to medical services and control over their own bodies. The roots of medical misogyny run very, very deep. For centuries, women's bodies, pain and illnesses have been uh, misunderstood and misdiagnosed and we've only recently acknowledged this inherent bias exists. Dr Eleanor Cleghorn explores the long history of Western medicine's gender health gap in her book Unwell Women, a journey through medicine and myth in a man-made world. And in welcoming you, Eleanor, to our little wireless program, I'd like to begin by asking you to explain why this book is so personal to you. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Unwell Women began as an investigation into medical history that was spurred on by my own diagnosis with a complex autoimmune disease called lupus. And this diagnosis happened in 2010, following a really complicated pregnancy whereby my unborn son's heart was beating very slowly. Now, one of the only causes for this condition was an autoantibody that I may have been carrying, which um, would attack my own body, but also my unborn child's. So I was tested for these autoantibodies and given a diagnosis. But I'd actually been an unwell woman for about 10 years before my diagnosis. And I'd suffered a lot of chronic pain and other symptoms for which the cause sort of remained baffling to my doctors and GPs. Every time I went to the doctor to try to find answers for my pain, I was dismissed or belittled or accused of being simply hormonal or anxious. So after a and few years... And for a years, while really, you almost believed them, didn't you? I did. I really internalised this idea that I must have been, you know, a hysterical woman rather than um, being right in my pursuit of what was going on in my body. So once I received my diagnosis, it felt, of course, my diagnosis was uh, devastating in many ways, but it was also a relief that I was right to pursue this hunch that something was going on in my body. So I began to look into medicine's history. I'm a historian, and it's my instinct to look into the past to work out where we are in the present. So I began to mine medicine's history to try and find some answers for the unanswered questions that I had around my diagnosis. And principally they were, why has it taken so many years for my pain to be taken seriously? And this is when I began to understand that medicine did have a deeply ingrained gender bias problem insofar as many chronic illnesses that predominantly affect women are among those that take the longest to be diagnosed. Lupus, for example, has an average diagnostic wait time of about six years. And as I continued with my research and found lupus patients, female lupus patients throughout history, 
I realized that medical science, diagnostic science has moved on exponentially, but really medicine's attitudes towards women's complicated illnesses and especially towards their pain really haven't progressed that far at all. So well, well let's that, now plunge into ancient history and in particular yes. to ancient Greece. Let's go back to the time of Hippocrates and Plato and you can tell us about the extraordinary notion of the wandering womb. I will. So the beginnings of our Western medical model really start in ancient Greece with the writings of physicians like the Hippocratics, who we know because health professionals still swear a version of the Hippocratic Oath. Now, these medical ideas were the first written medical tracts in history, but they were also written at a time when there were very particular ideas about what women's bodies were for. Ancient Greece was a very patriarchal society. Women were predominantly thought to exist for the purpose of childbearing. So it made sense to these early physicians and medical writers that almost all of women's illnesses and diseases must centre around their reproductive organs, principally around their wombs or uteruses. So when the Hippocratic doctors were writing in the 5th and 4th centuries BCE, they weren't able to look inside the body, they were not performing dissections, they didn't have access to diagnostic technology. So, so much of what they are elucidating about the human body really came from speculative hunches and from societal ideas. And so they came up with a theory that the womb would wander throughout a woman's body. So it would literally sort of creep mischievously towards her liver or perhaps towards her heart if it was not involved at the time in conceiving or carrying a child. Now, this, of course, we know to be a sort of ridiculous medical fiction now, but the idea that a woman's womb was only healthy if it was pregnant, and then if it wasn't pregnant, that it could cause truly horrifying symptoms from convulsions and fevers to pain to even death, very much cemented the idea that women are primarily reproductive, and in order to gain health, they must perform their ordained social duty, that is, be wives and mothers. I remember being astonished as I read about the wandering womb, but uh, I think I was even more gobsmacked when I learned from your writings that uh, there was a belief for centuries that uh, female reproductive system was, in fact, male genitalia, and I quote, turned outside in. Yes. So we have various thinkers and philosophers to thank for this one, principally Aristotle, the natural scientist, the ancient Greek natural scientist, who wrote about the female body as being an inferior and defective version of the male ideal, because the female reproductive organs, he theorized, were exact facsimiles of male genitalia, but just turned outside in. So that is turned, what should be outside is turned inside the body, making it inaccessible and mysterious and 
sort of shrouded in secrecy and shame for by virtue of it being inside the body. So this idea that a woman is essentially, in Aristotle's words, a mutilated male, you know, a smaller, weaker, more defective version of a male was something that has really persisted in medical thinking. Even when we began to have anatomical studies of the human body in the early modern period, we see that still the female genitalia and reproductive apparatus are drawn and visualized very much as facsimile of male genitalia, but just turned inside the body. And again, we know this to be complete fiction now, but the implications of this kind of thinking that women are purely smaller and more defective, weaker versions of, of men, has persisted and we we really see the, the resonances and ricochets of that kind of thinking still today. And and all, despite being a lifelong atheist, I entirely agree with the Old Testament that we can blame Eve for this. And she plays an important part in your musings. She does. So with the rise of Christian theology from around the 4th century AD, we see new conceptions of women's bodies informed by Christian stories. And the foundational story of Eve as the first woman whose body is somehow makes her responsible for the unleashing of all the sin in the world is really rooted this idea that women's bodies are always intent on childbearing, always intent on sex, and that women are sort of licentious and easily tempted and therefore not to be trusted. And all this distrust and uh, suspicion of women is really rooted in this idea that their bodies are uncontrollable and untamable. And, so and they are to be punished through eternity by, as Genesis puts it, Women in sorrow shall bring forth children. Yes. So the pain of women in childbirth especially was a way for all human women to atone for the sins of Eve. And what we see is not just a persistence of the idea that childbirth pains are women's punishment, but also that childbirth pains and women's biological pain more generally is something that women have to bear. You know, it's very much something that women have to bear for the good of the world, for them, and especially for the moral good of the world. There I, were theories later on that the pain of childbirth was actually the way that women loved their children. It actually assured that they would love them. I remember decades ago doing some programmes on, uh, on the burning of witches and these women were often targeted because they tried to help other women. This is true. I mean, throughout medicine's history, we understand that women practised a huge amount of domestic medicine and everyday healthcare. Medicine's history tends to be very male-dominated because male doctors are the ones who were able to create knowledge. They had literacy, they had access to professional forms of dissemination. So medical history as it is written down and constituted as history is very male-dominated for centuries. 
But of course, we know that women have always been carers. They have always been healers, whether that's for women in their communities or whether that's by acting as midwives or by transmitting knowledge in a wise women capacity that might have been held for centuries. The witch trials that spread across Europe between the 15th and the 17th century targeted the majority of women, about 75% of people accused of these supposed acts of witchcraft were women and many around or over the age of 40. Now we know that some of those women at least would have been involved in healing practices or would have held knowledge of how to care for bodies, knowledge that perhaps diverted or departed from this kind of sanctioned form of male knowledge. Heinrich Kramer, who was one of the um, most leading voices in diagnosing, I guess, the symptoms of witchcraft. So he wrote a whole book that explained how to find and try and accuse a woman of witchcraft. He was particularly suspicious of midwives and spoke about how they did more harm to the Catholic Church than any other figure. Oh. Women have always, of course, in midwifery, been in this space between life and life and death or the bringing of life. So they were ready targets for suspicion and persecution. Let's talk briefly, at least, about female hysteria. And quote, unquote, female hysteria. So we know hysteria as um, such a slur against women's emotions or a way to belittle um, women's contribution or voice. But female hysteria actually emerged into medical thinking in around the 17th century. So as the witch trials were beginning to wane in Europe, we see doctors and physicians turning towards the problem of women's illnesses, women's ill health, both mental and physical, and trying to create knowledge and diagnostic categories for some of the more baffling illnesses that affected women. Hysteria emerged gradually and it essentially described any conceivable mental or physical symptom that was even slightly difficult to explain. And it was rooted initially in the womb. Hystera is one of the ancient Greek words for womb, and it's always been closely linked with women's bodies. So the word hysteria infers that a woman is unwell in her mind or her body because of some disorder or distemper of the womb. So it's not surprising that early theories, of course, would link hysteria to a woman's failure to toe the domestic line or to become a mother or to use her womb in the way that society intended her to use it. By the 19th century, we see hysteria gaining such popularity as a diagnosis for almost any unexplainable illness in women. And as we look through these case studies, we can see again that it's a form of medical punishment, a way perhaps of blaming a woman's pain and other symptoms on the unruly nature of her female mind, her weak female mind, or her uncontrollable female body. And it was a frequent reason why women were admitted, for example, to what was then called lunatic asylums, psychiatric institutions. Hysteria was a, a 
another medical fiction. It was a made-up diagnosis with no real rooting in medical fact. But what it did do was obscure the real causes of why women might be unwell, both mentally and physically. Eleanor, from time to time, I give a a guest who I think has performed above and beyond the call of duty a metaphorical award, which is our koala stamp. And at this stage, in our chat, I want you to know that you've just won one. I'm speaking to cultural historian Dr Eleanor Cleghorn about unwell women, a journey through medicine and myth in a man-made world. Now, as you know from your own experience as an unwell woman, a doctor is just as likely or more likely to offer a woman a, a tranquilizer or an antidepressant than, than even pain medication. This is one of the key findings that has been revealed in studies into medical discrimination and medical gender bias over the last 20 years, in that Women who present to doctor's offices or to hospital rooms and to emergent emergent departments with chronic pain that can't be immediately attributed to a cause are far more likely to have that pain attributed to a psychological or emotional reason rather than to an underlying disease. And women are also far more likely than men to be prescribed a sedative or an antidepressant than an analgesic or an opiate pain reliever. We know from history, history has taught us that women's pain, when it can't be explained, is assumed to be emotional because women have been historically seen as having such unruly, sensitive emotions that what they feel has a very profound impact on their bodies. But what we see now, the way that we see this resonate today, the legacy of this misbelief today, is that when women seek help for principally for their pain, they might face diagnostic delays and misdiagnosis because in the absence of accurate knowledge and objective knowledge, we do sadly tend to fall back on stereotypes. And one of the reigning medical stereotypes about women is that their emotions and anxiety make them sick. And if we're going to remove sort of one key bias from our medical thinking going forward, I believe it really needs to be this one, that women's emotionality is responsible for their illnesses rather than an organic cause that's happening in their body. Now let's look at bias via race and class because uh, they also play an important role in the history. And what are some of the ways that medical discrimination has been magnified for poor or ethnically diverse women? We know that bias is, of course, intersectional and the biases that I might experience as a white woman who can talk about her body differ very much from, say, a woman of colour and ethnically diverse woman who also faces the obstacles of other kinds of prejudice against her pain, against her understanding of her body, and against her right, actually, to obtain good health. Again, these biases against race and class were laid down in the early 19th century into medical thinking. And we see all these ideas about civility. 
19th century anthropologists were very keen on ideas about how how civil, how civilized a person was affecting how their body worked and how they responded to stimuli. White upper and middle class women who had access to colonial and leisurely goods and pursuits were seen as being most capable of pain because they were thought to be most delicate and sensitive. At the other end of the pain scale, we have working class women whose apparent hardiness was seen to make them more invulnerable to pain and therefore less deserving of medical attention. And at the end of this scale of so-called civility, we see ethnically diverse women, particularly black women, who were perceived as being invulnerable to pain, to not feel pain at all. And we understand today that this is, of course, a racist misbelief that emerged around the time of debates around chattel slavery as a way of dehumanizing people who were enslaved. But these kind of misbeliefs, these racist misbeliefs were laid down as facts and they crept into medical thinking. So throughout medical history, we have this ingrained idea that Black and ethnically diverse women feel less pain than white women, that they're less deserving of attention around their pain. And there are others intersecting biases too around this presumed idea of the sort of hardiness of, say, a poorer or working class women. You also point out that, uh, well, since the 1940s, drugs to regulate female biology have been routinely rushed to market. Now, one of these cases, notoriously, of course, is thalidomide. Talk to that. So thalidomide was a drug that was prescribed for morning sickness, so for pregnancy sickness. And unfortunately, it was very poorly tested and raced to market. But the marketing around this particular drug insisted that it was perfectly safe for women to take during their pregnancies. It was prescribed in the 1940s and 50s. We now understand, of course, that it was not perfectly safe. It was very poorly trialed, and many women who took thalidomide during their pregnancies gave birth to children who had birth defects. This idea of racing drugs to market to cure or treat supposed female problems also has a long history. We see similar issues happening around, for example, the earliest hormone replacement therapies that were rushed to market very quickly in the 1940s. And those, of course, were based on the idea that women needed to be fed a lot of extra synthetic estrogen in order to maintain their desirable femininity. Now, HRT, we know, can be a life-saving medication for many, but the speed at which things like the early HRTs and also thalidomide are brought to market in showing that the preference is to put something to market and have it saleable rather than to really thoroughly research its potential effects. Am I, mis- am I misreading you? when you seem to suggest that this applies to some extent even to the pill, that women weren't sufficiently involved in the drug studies. Again, the contraceptive pill, the combined contraceptive pill, was poorly tested and it was unfortunately also tested on 
Puerto Rican women, many women in Puerto Rico, who did not realize that they were necessarily partaking in a clinical trial. When the drug came to market, feminist activists within the health sphere were working hard to reveal the unethical history of pills testing, but also the fact that it contained almost 10 times the amount of estrogen that today's combined pill would. And as a result of that was causing some pretty serious side effects in the many women who were taking it and being told it was perfectly safe. So in 1970, we see a group of American women, feminist activists, whose research led to um, congressional hearings about the safety of the contraceptive pill that called the manufacturers to really address and properly communicate the possible nature of side effects. And again, this is how we see women's concerns being dismissed. Because doctors around the time were being told that the pill was perfectly safe, if women went to their doctors pain or swelling or sexual dysfunction or other symptoms, they were usually being told it couldn't be caused by the pill because of the insistence on the pill's safety. And I know we've got to wind it up, but you've been a wonderful guest, hence your Koala Stamp Award. I've been talking to Dr. Eleanor Craigon, a feminist cultural historian, and her book is Unwell Women, A Journey Through Medicine and Myth in a Man-Made World, and it's uh, published here in Australia by Hachette. Now, that's your lot. On our next, we're going to learn how, how to stage a coup and other dark arts of statecraft, and we'll take a look at the life of the Australian-born, Oscar-winning filmmaker, John Farrow, who, among other things, was Mia's dad. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.